Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everybody in between. Welcome back. It is summer. Yes, we're loving a bit of summer. Um, we had one day where it went a bit kind of colder. We always start with a bit of weather. That's so British of us, isn't it? It really is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the first place I go. Like anybody cares. It's, it's, it's kind of been sunny this week, although there were a few days where it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the, the weather commentary part of the paranormal. Actually, paranormal weather... That is something we need to... Yeah, we um, need to do an episode on that, don't we? Yeah, yeah Charles yeah. Fort was obsessed with um, raining fish, wasn't he? He was. So. Well, weirdly, Charles Fort's got a bit of a connection to what we're talking about today, actually. God, this place is full of jots. Yeah, jots, yeah. Sherlock Holmes update at the end. Yes, we'll do the TQM Tulpa project at the end of the episode. Um, I've had a couple of things, Sherlock Holmes related this week and i believe you have as well ben yes um including how i enlisted sherlock to try and solve the mystery of my missing bottle opener now you still haven't told me whether you've solved this or not you want to tell me on air yeah i'm gonna wait until the end you're just gonna have to kind of it's quite interesting um but let's save that to the end uh because i have an episode overflowing with content today Ah, uh, you've built your own segue in there, because I know own. what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have built my own segue. So today we're going to talk about a subject we've not really covered on the podcast, and that is unidentified aquatic objects, or also known as USOs. I, there's so many three- and four-letter acronyms to describe these things. <laughs> Just pick one of your favourites. S-A-C's, soggy alien craft. Yeah, exactly. Basically, UFOs of the sea. Let's just call them that. UFOs of the sea, got it. And I was thinking about why we haven't really covered them uh, on the podcast. And I think for me, compared to UFOs, I know relatively little about the subject. Yeah, no, I don't either. I know nothing. I mean, I've heard of those, there's those stories, aren't there, of kind of, I don't know if it's Scandinavia or Norway, of those strange tracks they found in the seabed that are like a mile wide and all that stuff. Yeah, and then there's that. Thing that looks a bit like the Millennium Falcon, which is on the seabed. Yeah, oh god, there's so many photos, aren't there? Mm-hmm. That if googly map type stuff, if you just Google the three words "alien underwater bases," you'll be hit with a load of them. But but we've talked about that before on the podcast, haven't we, Ben? Those kind of images. A, you don't know if they're genuine or are they just something weird that has a logical explanation? You know, mm. a bit like bases on the moon. So I asked a friend uh, where the best place to start delving into this subject could be, this subject of underwater UFOs, and they recommended a book, which I'm going to talk about today. Excellent. Now, the book is called Invisible Residence, The Reality of Underwater UFOs. That sounds ominous already. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Now, it was first published in 1970, and it was written by someone called Ivan T. Sanderson. Who was who was a, a a big kind of disciple, I guess you'd say, or fan of um, said Ford that we mentioned. A, a minute yeah, ago. I was going to say I thought I recognised the name. Yeah, well, Ivan T. Sanderson was a British biologist and writer who went to live in America. He was born in 1911, sadly passed away in 1973. So just three years after this book was first published, I guess he really had two passions biology zoology uh which he had a ba in from cambridge interestingly enough and baking yeah well his second one is what we would describe on the quantum mechanics as the paranormal oh not baking especially cryptids because i guess he had that zoological kind of background yeah yeah is he is he british is he he originally was born in britain but then i think lived most of his life in the states i see i think he was born in edinburgh i think right right uh, he claims to have seen, and I don't think I'm going to pronounce this right, on Olitaya, which is a type of giant cryptid bat. Oh, I've never heard that either. No, I've not heard that, but uh, I did Google some images. looks a vicious thing. Obviously, it's a cryptid, so I, I couldn't find any photos, more artist <laughs> impressions. It is a huge giant bat, I think kind of human size, basically. Why are so many cryptids... Like, drawn with, like, drippling with blood. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. There's never, like, oh, the old friendly beast yeah. of Boggington Moor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll just smile at you. They li- they never look like giant duckbill platypuses, <laughs> do they? No, no. <laughs> Even the rabbits were, te- were terrifying. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah, well, I guess you, you need the fear factor. 
Um, before we dive into the book, see what I did there? <laughs> I have to highlight a couple of caveats to Ivan's work. I feel we have to give both sides of the story here on the quantum mechanics. So firstly, my first caveat is this book was published in 1970, so possibly some of the stories we will discuss have been updated or other conclusions may have been drawn since then. I've tried to double-check things as I went along, but obviously I can't check every single story to see if there's been an update in the last 50 years. So that's caveat number one. Um, but I know we have some really knowledgeable listeners out there, so if you are sitting there listening to this and go, hold on, wait a minute, that case was proved to be a humpback whale in 2001, then just let us know, that would be good, and we'll we'll update it if we get any kind of contrary information. Does that make sense? Perfect, I get it. Now, my second caveat is that Ivan had his critics, and though his book, this book is packed full of scientific facts and data, one of his previous books, titled Abominable Snowman... <laughs> was criticised by a science journal, or the science journal. <laughs> I'll quote the critique. Unfortunately, the author's concept of what constitutes scientific evidence will scarcely be accepted by most scientists. His standards are unbelievably low. <laughs> Sanderson relied on anecdotal reports and dubious footprints. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, Ben, I do think that is a little bit harsh, and undoubtedly there is more evidence relating to unidentified aquatic phenomena than probably the abominable snowman. But I kind of know what the critic was saying, and there were certain times when I was reading this book that reminded me of when we covered the Ringmakers of Saturn book. Oh, yes, yeah. There was some spurious stuff in there. Yeah, there, there was points in this book I'm going to cover today when the author kind of... Well, if we if we relate it back to Ringmakers of Saturn, when we were doing that, there were a couple of points where the writer almost went, right, now we've proved that Saturn rings are created by giant spaceships. <laughs> Let's have a look at the moon. <laughs> he, did, he absolutely did that, yes. And as a reader, you're thinking... Hang on, have we proved that? <laughs> and I had some of those moments reading the book I'm going to cover today about underwater UFOs. All that said, there are some amazing stories and documented cases in the book and some really interesting theories which kind of sparked my imagination. So even with a hardcore sceptic hat on, I came away thinking this is a fascinating concept at least and I think we can work with that, right? That's all, that's all we need to know. I mean, he isn't the only person to say that USOs are a thing, so... Yeah, exactly. Now, Where is the ring man of Saturn, maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a lone, that was a lone exploit. I think, I think he, he had a very unique view there. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Now, the book has lots of lead-up and data which feeds into Sanderson's theory and conclusion. I'm going to approach it from the other way round. I'm going to start with the conclusion, and then we can see what, is feeding the theory and whether it holds water, pardon the pun. <laughs> so, Sanderson's concept, put plainly, is, and I quote, simply that there is an underwater civilization or civilizations on this planet that have been here for a long while and which have evolved here and or that are intelligent entities that have been coming here from elsewhere probably for a very long time and which prefer to use the bottom of the hydrosphere and possibly also the surface layers of the lithosphere below that, basically underwater, mm -hmm. I think he's saying, on which to reside and form from where they operate. I mean, this is this feels like a common narrative anyway. Yes, yes, but I think he may have been one of the originators of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it did kind of, well, you kind of think of that concept. It's very, I was thinking about uh, James Cameron's The Abyss. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's been the, the recent Black Panther movie was kind of similar themes of underwater civilization. So uh, it has kind of got some resonance, I think, since the 70s. Right, right. He goes on to say, it's the consensus of all opinion, let alone the purely scientific, that life as we know it on this planet originated in water and only later came out onto land under the air. True fact. True fact. 
The atmosphere is therefore an unnatural environment for our life forms, and in order to function in it at all, we have to expend most of our corporal energy creating an Aquarius environment within our bodies, and one with almost exactly the constitution of seawater in order to survive in this environment. We do. Well, I, I was a bit like, really? And I, I've done a bit of Googling. Yes, apparently the water in our body is pretty much the same consistency as seawater. What, what, within our blood? Within our blood, yeah. No, salty, surely. Yeah, well, I guess when you wow. kind of cut your finger, it's kind of a salty taste, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So I guess the implication here, Ben, is that a completely separate species developed on Earth or made its home here and continues to live deep within our oceans. Sanderson continues by saying, if this species developed on this planet underwater, they would very likely have gotten much farther ahead than we have, having have several millions or possibly up to a billion years head start on us, life as we know it having started in the sea. Fair point. Fair point. Life by its very nature implies variation and thus evolution, so it must be forever progress to ever greater complexity, and sooner or later one or another form of such life would seem inevitably to reach a point where it desires to control its environment, just as we higher primates did when we moved from a sort of higher ape type to what we call the human being. Okay. It's it's okay, isn't it, so far? No, no, this is a reasoned argument. I'm liking this. Now, I guess one of the things that struck me, and you may be thinking the same, Ben, that is, if there is a super-advanced civilization living under the water, why are we unaware of it, and why don't we see them, or at least see them more? I mean, I suppose his argument, and I would accept it, is we know so little about the oceans, is easy to hide. Yeah. I th- yes, exactly. That that pretty much is his argument. He says, three quarters of the surface of this planet lies under the surface of the water. Right. And this water, or hydrosphere, is on average somewhat over two miles deep. Mm-hmm. So not only, Ben, is there a lot of deep water out there, we only explore and certainly only travel along a minute proportion of it. He points out, Nearly three-quarters of the surface of our planet is covered with water, but despite airplanes now flying over the oceans and boating going on all about, we have only a minute portion of this vast Aquarius area under regular surveillance. Our shipping lanes across the oceans are only on an average about 20 miles wide, and our airlines not much more. So what really goes on on the oceans and even on their peripheral seas is really quite unknown to us, and what goes on under them is even less known. Mm. I thought that was a really interesting point. And I, I think like many people who are not really familiar with things maritime, I mean, I knew about shipping lanes, but I hadn't really thought about, compared to the whole of the sea and oceans, how narrow they are. No, no, I'd never. that had never occurred to me either. 20 miles... Across an ocean, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a razor down a block of cheese, isn't it? It really is, yeah. There was also another fact in the book that struck me. Um, Sanderson claims that, by actual account, over fifty percent of all so-called sightings of UFOs have occurred over, coming from, going away over, or plunging into, or coming out of water. Right, right. I think Columbus saw one of those. Yeah, there is that story, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I guess, given how much of our planet is water, that may not be surprising. But then if you factor in how little of that water has a human presence or being observed by humans, it is quite an interesting fact that 50% of UFO sightings involve some kind of water incident. Yes, yes. The book is crammed full of accounts of encounters with identified aquatic objects, many coming or being confirmed by military, primarily Navy sources. 
I mean, in the book, there we we were talking about it before we started. There are just hundreds of these things, so I've tried to pick out a small number just to give you a flavour. But there's a lot more in the book. One that really caught my eye was from 1963, and it reminded me of a more recent military encounter over water, that of the Nimitz tic-tac. the Tic Tac, yes. yeah. <laughs> and you'll see what I mean when I get into the story. I mean, that happened in 2004, which occurred during a training exercise. And I believe one of the pilots also saw something emerging from under the sea. Correct, yes, I believe that's true as well. Well, something similar happened sometime in 1963 when the US Navy was conducting some exercises to train personnel in the detection and tracking of underwater craft, so submarines. So if you think about it, what this is early 60s submarines were kind of really getting into their stride so i guess it makes sense wouldn't it mm, the military mm. would want to do tests the maneuvers were conducted off puerto rico in the atlantic some 500 miles southeast of continental united states all reports seem to agree that there were five small vessels concerned but in more than one account the aircraft carrier wasp is stated to have been the command ship They appear also to have been a number of submarines engaged in this exercise and all vessels were intimately linked by advanced electronic communication systems. There were also aircraft, at least one of which trailed a detection device a little below the surface of the ocean from a line while flying at a very low altitude. Then there occurred a rather special and particular uproar which, at least as far as I have been able, this is the writer, to ascertain, was initiated as follows. A sonar operator on one of the small vessels, otherwise listed as a destroyer, reported to his bridge that one of the submarines had broken formation and gone off in what appeared to be pursuit of some unknown object. Sounds very nimity, doesn't it? It does, very much, This is under the water, not over the water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at what speed? This This is intriguing. Well, we'll get on to speed in a minute. The operator did not, of course, know if this was a plant since the manoeuvres they were engaged in exercises designed to train personnel in the detection of enemy craft. And in such exercises, decoys must be, of course, always employed. So he just thought it was part of the test. Mm. However, this operator's report was not at all within the limits of any such simulation. The trouble was the unidentified subaquatic object was travelling at over 150 knots. Now, Ben, bear in mind, the fastest submarine we know of, even today, is recorded at around 33 knots. Right. So basically, this thing, in 1963, was travelling at 172 miles per hour underwater. Good God. Compared to the fastest ever recorded submarine at 38 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, I don't think of... Uh, submarines as being particularly fast. I mean, how can they be? Yeah, exactly. They're not really built for that. No. The deck officer on watch immediately reported to the skipper, said to have been a lieutenant commander, and this officer was not amused, it says. (laughs) Nonetheless, after calling on his communication boys on the intercom, he got in touch with the command vessel, the WASP, but was further frustrated to find that their radio intake was virtually jammed with similar reports coming from all the other ships and from the trailing aircraft. Blimey. Then, so this is, a, this is multiple sightings across multiple craft. Exactly, yes. Then comes a curious note from one from more than one of the reports that I have. This is to the effect that no less than 13 craft, including submersibles and aircraft, noted in their official logs that their underwater tracking devices had latched onto said high-speed submersible. Various number of people in various numbers of ships are alleged to have observed or heard the sonar blips caught by their own operators and also have concurred that this object was being driven by a single propeller at more than 150 knots. Wow. Thus the object recorded above be anything that we can do at the present stage of our technology, technological development by nearly four times in speed. 
But this was not the whole story. It is said that the technicians kept track of this thing for four days and then it manoeuvred round and about and down to depths of 27,000 feet. The record dive at the time for a standard submarine was 6,250 feet. God. The record for a mere submersion at the time uh, went down to 35,800 feet and it was by uh, it was in the Pacific in the 1960s. However, this craft could hardly move along at all, while the skipjacks, I guess these are the other submarines, cannot, cannot go down more than six of, uh, to a sixth of that depth. So some submersibles had gone down deeper than this thing went, but I think they were literally lowered down and pulled back up. Anything that moved, A, couldn't move that fast, and B, could go nowhere near the depths that this thing did. Yeah, yeah. So we have a large propelled object travelling at record speeds and record depths confirmed by multiple ships, submarines and planes. What year is this again? 63. And then it just disappeared, did it, off their radars? Yeah, yeah, after four days it disappeared. Um, and remind me what the size was, do they know the size? They didn't talk about the size, actually. There's no detail of that. But it, I guess it was big enough to be recorded on radar. So um, definitely bigger than kind of any kind of fish or whale, which was what ruled out. Interesting that it hangs around for four days. Yes. And kind of then has this kind of immense dive that, you know what I mean? It just, it's so odd that. I do, do you see why it reminds me of the Nimit? Oh, I do. Yeah. 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 Because that's. That TikTok, uh, that Tic Tac rather, just disappears up. Yes. But there are, I remember on the video, there are shots of it. It seems to disappear in the water. I guess it depends on the angle of the camera. That's yeah, really it does hard appear. To tell. It does appear to, yes. So this is an example of a craft or wherever, whatever it was uh, that was only seen on radar. The next encounters I have seem to suggest an object either flying in the air or disappearing into the sea or vice versa. These are all recorded in ships' logs. First is the log of a Norwegian ship, the TT Joesta, and it recorded that on the 6th of July 1965, at 21.52 hours, while on passage between Venezuela and the Canary Islands, the lookout on the bridge reported a bright object in the sky moving in a northerly direction. The captain, H.A. Trovik, was alerted by ship telephone and later submitted a report to the Geophysical Institute in Bergen, Norway. His chief mate stated, I can say with complete certainty it was no question of an aircraft of conventional type or rocket or meteor or ball lightning. The object is described in very considerable detail as issuing tongues of flames and making sudden turns. And the report then goes on to state, its speed was tremendous. It was visible for about 30 to 40 seconds. It was moving at the time in a north to south direction, its approximate course being 180 degrees. Despite its enormous speed and closeness of its passage, we could not hear the least sound from it. Wow, wow, wow. The lookout on the port side, Seaman Hernandez, maintained that it seemed as though the object had come out of the sea and that it was travelling northwards and then suddenly changed course towards us. The helmsman, ordinary seaman Narciso Gullion, saw the object just after it passed over the ship and on the poop deck, fitter... <laughs> well, I bet he did. <laughs> fitter Juan Hernandez, a mess hand... Ignacio Suarez also saw it. Their accounts tally with mine. So that's that of the captain. That was from the ship's log. That flames thing is very interesting. Yeah, and the, and the quietness, I always... Yeah. Because you get that a lot with kind of UFO incidents as well, don't you? Yeah, you do. Um, and more recent accounts, you don't seem to get the flames. No. I've, I've seen more accounts of flames from that period, which goes back to the everything was a bit steampunky at one point. Well, there is a theory that I'll get onto in the end that this author puts forward. It's not really the thrust of his book. It was almost a throwaway comment, but I really latched onto it. So it's interesting you said that. 
Here's another one. The 20th of July, 1967, in the log of an Argentinian ship, the Nivero, belonging to the Argentine Shipping Line Company. This occurred some 120 miles off the coast of Brazil, opposite Cape Santa Marta Grande at 6.15pm. The Navarro was running at 17 knots. The officer and crew were at their evening meal at the time. The master, Captain Julian Lucas Ardanza, received a call on the intercon system from one of his officers, named Montoya, to the effect that there was something strange near the ship. Arriving at once on deck, the captain beheld a shining object in the sea no more than 50 feet away from the starboard side. It was cigar-shaped, had he estimated its length to be 105 to 110 feet. That's huge. It had a powerful blue and white glow, made no noise whatsoever, and left no wake in the water. So this is in the water. So this sounds like it might have some sort of field around it. It does, yes. There is a lot in the book about electromagnetic fields, which kind of ties into his theory. I mean, some of his scientific leaps let's say that he makes um are a bit huge but that is the theme he does touch on right says there was no sign of any periscope or railing or tower or substructure in other words no external control surface or protruding parts the mystery craft paced the navarro for 15 minutes the captain estimated its speed at up to 25 knots as against 17 knots of his own vessel The next development, however, was disconcerting to say the least. The mystery craft suddenly dived and passed right under the Nivero and vanished rapidly into the depths at great speed. As it went, it growed brightly beneath the water. The Nivero was carrying explosives and gunpowder and in order to stave off any panic among the crew, should they get the idea into their heads they were being pursued because of this type of cargo, the captain and his officers judged it prudent to assemble the crew and tell them what they had just seen. In the subsequent interviews with reporters from the Argentinian press, the captain said that during his 20 years at sea he had never seen anything like that before. His chief officer described the object as a submergible UFO with its own illumination. Good Lord, good Lord. The possibility that the object seen was a whale or conventional type of submarine has been ruled out. The witnesses were firm in their insistence that the luminous cigar looked totally different from a submarine or a whale and could not possibly have been either of these things. The case has been classified by the Argentinian maritime authorities and as, as... I quote, an unidentified submarine object. Right, right. Uh, I've got an earlier um, incident. Um, I'm not going there, there was some that kind of, as they do with these books, go back to the 1800s and the turn of the century and sailboats. I, I kind of, they're so cloudy and in the past that I've tried to cover the more recent ones as per yeah, the publication yeah. of the book. Because they come across, they're like, oh, I saw a bright candle on the horizon, mm. and yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or, a, yeah, a thing with dragon fire. It's like, with well, dragon fire, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is the story of the Delaroff incident, which occurred in the summer of 1945, while Robert S. Crawford was serving as one of the Army radio men aboard. The ship was heading back to Seattle was in open sea past Adak. I'm not quite sure where Adak is, but sounds no. good. It was about sunset and Crawford was on the port side near the radio room when he heard shouts from some of the crew. He turned and saw a large round object which had just emerged from the sea. Several crewmen saw the UFO actually appear from underwater an estimated mile or so from the boat. The unknown craft, showing darkly against the setting sun, climbed almost straight up for a few moments, then it arched into level flight and began to circle the ship. All the observers were convinced it was a large object. Crawford estimates the UFO to be 150 to 250 feet in diameter. As it circled the Delaroff, the flying object was in easy range of the ship's guns, but the gun crew held their fire though they were on alert for any sign of hostility. 
The UFO circled the vessel two or three times, moving smoothly and with no audible sound. All the witnesses felt it was self-propelled, otherwise the winds would have visibly affected its movement. After several minutes, the flying object disappeared to the south or southwest. Suddenly, the crew saw three flashes of light from the area where it, had, where it vanished. The Delaroff the captain posted an extra watch as the ship moved on. So coming Morning. out of the water again. So there are multiple examples like this in the book. Right. Uh, and I chose these as examples, as, as I said, because they actually came from the ship's logs, which, you know, I, I think gives it a little bit more credibility Absolutely. if they check out. You wouldn't put it in there if you weren't, you know, if you hadn't seen something. Correct. And there's definitely this theme, and that one was more a kind of, you know, traditional, let's we say, UFO saucer type shape. Mm. But they're... I was struck with how many of them describe cigar shapes, making yeah. no sound and expelling certain kind of light and in the water or going in and out of the water. And we still get cigar shapes reported all the time uh, in the sky as part of, you know, general UFO uh, reporting. Yeah, yeah. And this is the, the instance you're talking about many, many years before anybody had the ability to make this stuff in a you know in a man-made environment yeah definitely definitely well it's interesting you say that it's almost like you're seeing my notes we <laughs> we are going to go back in time because there's a kind of a side story in the book which is incredibly fascinating which i'm, I'm gonna talk about there's this fascinating story that relates to an ancient object and i guess a little bit of a jot or strange coincidence for the author so in 1954, the government of Colombia sent a collection of their priceless gold treasures on a tour of United States museums. Now, a friend of the author, Sanderson, called a guy called Emmanuel Staub, he created replicas of priceless objects to be displayed in museums. So, because they didn't want to display these things in case they got you know nicked this guy was the expert who recreated them probably making them gold plated rather than solid gold you get the thing now he was given permission to take casts of some of these colombian treasures using a new technique Storb showed one of these replica objects to the author of this book sanderson to get his opinion on it as he thought it was some kind of flying animal or a bird or an insect and as sanderson as a zoological expert might be able to identify it now, this original object, this piece of, I guess it was jewellery, was created over 2,000 years ago. But Sanderson felt it didn't represent any flying creature that he was aware of. And bear in mind, this guy has seen a giant bat. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that, yes. Um, I'm just going to show Ben a picture of this thing. If you want to see it for yourself, we'll put the images of it on Facebook so if you go to at TQM podcast, like and subscribe while you're there. It's always good. Or check out the YouTube version of the podcast at The Quantum Mechanics. Um, I'm just going to show it to Ben now. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. This is the object that um, that guy with the crazy hair on Ancient Aliens wears as a decorative Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, makes thing. sense. Yeah. yeah. Well... So I guess that object or the story of this originated with the author of this book. Because um, it looks like um, an ancient aeroplane. That's the basics of it. It does, yes. And the author felt that it looked more like an aircraft than anything else. But it was created 2,000 years ago, so how could that be? So it's quite interesting. He sent it to a number of experts without telling them any of the backstory or anything about the object itself, which I think was quite a good idea. The first expert was someone called Arthur Young. He said, I've received the small flying object and your request for an opinion. This small solid gold object certainly suggests an airplane, especially in the vertical tail surface, which is not present in birds or insects. But the wings are in the wrong place. They should be further forward, so it is a quarter cord 
coinciding with the centre of gravity for anything other than a tail engine jet. The nose is very unairplane-ish, so I have to confess, while it suggests an airplane, it does not resemble one. So that doesn't seem like it's kind of, yeah, it kind of looks like maybe not. The next expert was a German engineer called Jack A. Ulrich. He said, I was asked to give my thoughts and opinions on this little gold pendant which Ivan gave me. He did not tell me where it came from or what it was. He simply asked me, what do you think this is? The first impression I got from the thing, not knowing its origin or anything else about it, was it represents some form of aircraft and a high-performance one at that. With its delta wings, it looks like an F-102 fighter. Starting at the nose, we find first two decorative whirls on the top and then two things that look like eyeballs arranged laterally on the back end of the said nose. Such items are not normally found on aircraft as we know them. This could be due to what is called artistic licence. But the funny thing is that if such things were put on modern planes, those planes would still fly. Many modern aircraft have more junk hanging on their outsides and they still manage to stagger into the air. Reverting to the model, the cockpit is broad and depending on the overall size of the craft, which of course we cannot estimate, could accommodate one, two or more persons. Again, I refer you to the F-102. The body could have been streamlined with a bubble over the cockpit. In fact, since the delta wing configuration implies high performance, by which I mean speed, it would be necessary. Otherwise, the occupants would not do so well in the resulting air turbulence. The body of this plane is nicely tapered and has enough volume to allow installed a power plant, which should be, in this type of thing, a turbojet engine. I would, it would not make sense to put any reciprocating engine or anything like that into a fuselage such as this. But this object spells out but one thing to me, namely a jet. The only difference I see between this and today's delta wing jets is that ours all have a different type of fuselage, which has developed more or less by accident and which we call a coke bottle fuselage. The specific shape has been created in order to make it possible for the plane to pass through the atmosphere at very high velocities and at the same time to decrease buffering. Buffeting. Considering next the underside of the object, an air intake for an engine may be indicated on the belly side under the cockpit. As I mentioned at the start, this type of thing appears to represent a high-performance type aircraft, and for those of you not acquainted with this matter, and specifically not with the F-102, I would ask you to look at the widely circulated designs of the proposed SS-T of Boeing. So he's pointing out that this thing does have some credentials as an Yeah, aircraft. he said an aircraft with this type of wing needs great power for takeoff and they rise at remarkable steep angles in order to get lift. Then they fly very fast and land at high speeds. There's another expert who takes it even further. The next expert who blind assessed this object was another engineer called Adolf Hula, formerly of the US Air Force. Now, he pretty much agreed with the previous expert that this was some kind of super-powered, abrupt-rise aircraft because of it. Ha- they, there's a lot of detail about the dips in the wings. He also had a new take on the object. He stated that the design, the design seemed to him to resemble an aircraft that could climb into the air and maintain itself there, but could also plunge into water and maintain equilibrium there as well. Oh, okay, I see where he's getting at. It was then compared to a prototype plane that flew off the coast of California in 1966 called the Flying Fish. It could fly through the air like a plane and then dive into the water and continue its journey like a submarine. I want one. (laughs) Yeah. So there we have a 2,000-year-old artefact, likely a piece of jewellery, which seems to portray a complex flying machine that can dive and work underwater. Remember, these experts had no idea what they were looking at or its history. No, no. I found that fascinating. Um, It is fascinating. So does the author, like, obviously it doesn't look like anything that we've heard people report, though. 
No, that, 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 that is the flaw. I think that's probably why he did it as a bit of an aside. Right. Rather right. than it's not really the main body of the... He's kind of in the book, it's like, oh, this weird thing happened. How about this? That's what I meant. It was a bit jot-like. But I thought it was really interesting. He does talk about, I think, a story we may have covered before, kind of reports of, uh, I don't know, about a thousand years ago of of an Indian flying machine that was run off mercury being burnt i don't know if you've come across that but yes yes uh what's that called it begins with a v yeah i can't remember i know yes uh yes i know what you mean circular um supposedly the um started the legend of flying carpets yes that's right and but there are there is a lot of detail in the book about mercury and how um if it's heated it can create huge energy and stuff so again i've not included it here but it was a slight aside but i thought it was a fascinating story no it's great but and i suppose the the connection then would be this is a breakaway civilization rather than aliens correct yes i think that's where he leans that you know this civilization has been developing for millions of years and they've just kind of remained hidden from us or don't care about us and we don't come into contact with them very often which is why they would probably be upset about nuclear weapons correct and maybe military activity yeah i mean there is a bit in the book where he said maybe initially they didn't um care that we were there you know which might explain a lot of kind of mythology and law and strange sightings from past but yeah he was saying as soon as we got kind of radar and submarines they may have changed their approach and gone well maybe we need to hide a bit more maybe we also need to assert our authority a bit as well yeah there is that now there there are big sections of the book that go into the bermuda triangle (laughs) there's a huge bit about them i'm not going to talk about it oh boy firstly because the way it's written is quite complicated and there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's quite funny where he does a three-day conference and they find kind of five or six areas like the Bermuda Triangle across the globe and then they break a globe apart and start sticking skewers through it and getting correlations, and which may be true, um, but, you know, it was all a bit woo-woo for me. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a big fan of that stuff. Yeah, um, I'm not going to talk about Bermuda Triangle, firstly because it is complicated, and secondly, I think since the book was published, there's been a lot said about the subject. And for me, I don't know if you agree, the most plausible explanation is connected with disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field that I've seen. Yes, That yes. cause equipment and navigation systems to function. And in fairness to the author, he does touch on that, but it is a bit of a kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall. It's kind of, could be magnets, it could be electricity. Right, it could be, right, you know, right. It's like, whoa, whoa. Um, there are also chapters on time anomalies, whirly gigs, and water vortices. I think that uh, when you read reviews of the book, it's kind of famous for that theory of these water vortices. But again, it kind of when I was reading it, it slightly lost me, and I thought this is this is a bit weak on the scientific front, or maybe it's just not going in for me. But I, I've avoided it because it was too complicated. Um, I guess what I got most out of the book, remembering it was originally published in the nineteen seven in nineteen seventy, was some of the fascinated documented encounters with unidentified aquatic objects, and this rather intriguing theory that there is a technologically advanced civilization living under our oceans, possibly indigenous to the planet, maybe originating from the stars. Either way, it's quite interesting. I started thinking about it after I read it. And I thought, yeah, it was published in the 1970s. So you may be thinking, well, technology's come a long way since then, right? Surely we'd know about this secret civilization by now. Yeah. But I still think it's worth remembering the enormity and depth of the volume of water on this planet and how much we rarely, if ever, explore it. So I, I did a little exercise. So if you take submarines, you would think in this day and age our submarines would encounter this technologically advanced civilization under the waves, right? Putting aside, you know, oh, there's a big cover-up and a conspiracy theory and they're kind of not telling us the truth. You put that aside for a minute. So if you bear in mind, 71% of the Earth's surface is water. 97% of that water is in the ocean. 
The average depth of our oceans is nearly four kilometres deep, so that's two miles deep. That's the average, not the deepest spot. I thought, well, if we look at today, how many submarines are actually out there exploring this vast expanse? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, apart from military, I would imagine only research vessels belonging to universities. I mean, yeah, I focused on military because I thought they're probably the most, I think they're the ones that can go down to depths. I think. Research vessels tend to focus on one specific area, don't they? They do the Mariana Trench or whatever. So, And it's hard to kind of calculate. But I was surprised, actually, at the number or the relatively small amount of submarines that are actually out there. I reckon America has got, what, like maybe 35? Uh, a bit more. If we look at the numbers, I think this is from 2022... China is in first place with 79 submarines. Oh, wow. United States has 68. Russia, 64. North Korea, 36. Iran, 29. South Korea, 22. Japan, 20. India, 17. Turkey, 12. And coming in at number 10, United Kingdom with 11. Oh, we got 11, have we? Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, there are other countries that have got submarines as well, but again, you're getting down to single digits. So assuming the whole of the world's submarine force was in the ocean at the same time, which is a big if, you know, some will be in ports, some will yeah. be, you know, whatever. We're talking about just over 300 vessels exploring this vast area of ocean. It's nothing. And if we're dealing with an underwater civilization that have had a million years or more head start on us humans and want to remain hidden from us, it feels much less of a ridiculous theory or an idea that we really wouldn't see them. No, and we probably don't even know what we're looking for. Yes, and if you think about these stories that he reports in the book and some of the ones that we've covered, these are the ones that people have talked about. I mean, we know from airline or air, even commercial airlines let alone military um encountering ufos most of them probably don't get reported right because who's going to believe it yeah the biggest problem i see though is the very practical problem of where do they build them yeah well i guess underwater he, he does a- he does go into a bit in the book about how you can lay concrete and metal and weld and do all kinds of stuff underwater that we don't assume that you can, which so he is he tries to cover that point at least. But even so, like you've seen where they build submarines, that's a vast, it's a vast facility with many, many people. Yeah, you'd think we'd spot an underwater UFO factory, but well, maybe not. Not if it was four miles down and kind of. Yeah. Uh, in a cave, or maybe they, he, you know, he has this theory that maybe they dig out caves or they're at the kind of shelf at the bottom of the ocean and they kind of hide away there. So I, I think there's a lot of ocean out there and a lot of space, I guess he would argue. I wonder what they eat. Yeah. Sushi. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have to be a fish based diet, wouldn't it? Yeah, probably, well, plankton. Well, I guess that's fish in a way, but... Um, or maybe that's why they take cows, because they love steak. Yeah, would, would explain it, wouldn't it? <laughs> Wait, we might have a theory. Well, should we get on to the theory that you were talking about? Yeah. The, the kind of steampunk thing? Yeah. He puts forward this theory in the book that could link UFOs, cryptids, ghost sightings and screen memories. That's a hell of a theory. Yeah. The idea is... And again, remembering he was probably being influenced in the 1970s, partly by the technology of the time, but it's interesting. He puts forward this idea that an advanced underwater civilization could be using technology like projection or some kind of solid holograms to explore the surface without having to travel there themselves. That they would try and disguise this technology in a way that is more palatable or less shocking to us humans. Hence, why UFO sightings in the early 1900s looked like balloons or airships, triangular craft oh. in the 60s and 70s. He even takes it as far as if they wanted to come on land, you know, ghosts, cryptids, owls. I kind of guess it's a type of clunky camouflage 
I, I thought that was quite interesting. I never really thought about it. I never thought one. about that. I like that as well. Why? Because their original image is so horrifying. Well, if they want to remain hidden, but they want to kind of keep some surveillance of us, they would try and create something that's more palatable to us than completely shocking. Yeah, okay. It's his theory. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. But I would probably have... I would argue back to him that, well, if you did air balloons, just keep doing air balloons because they're not shocking at all. Yeah. They're much less shocking than a V-shaped craft the size of a football pitch well and also if you if you have got such advanced technology why not just perfectly replicate something like a you know a commercial airliner or a a private plane rather than something Mm. that does look a bit out look there are holes in that theory i grant you (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah but it is intriguing it also what i liked about this civilization being um evolving here maybe indigenous is it would it counter those arguments of it's a huge universe how would any aliens ever find us mm. and the answer is well they're not aliens they're mm. indigenous we just don't know that they're there yeah yeah that makes sense which is really it kind of opens up all kinds of possibilities then it makes me well it makes more sense out of things like Sam the Sandown Clown and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Well, the book is well worth a read. Keep your sceptical faculties about you when you do read it. What's um, it called? It is called Invisible Residence, The Reality of Underwater UFOs. It's by Ivan T. Sanderson. Paperbacks go for about 16 quid. Whenever someone's called Ivan, there's the small childish bit in my head where I'm I want to do the Ivor Biggin joke. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just me. Ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that, that is fascinating and, and sort of... Um, it, it makes me think of all the sorts of... Because since the 70s, we've had a much more bigger culture of um, abductions. Mm. He does go into abductions. Oh, does he? They're, he talks about the Mary Celeste. He talks about that story I covered on the podcast... Uh, about that boat where everyone was found dead on board and there was a dog and they were all looking up at the sky in shock. Um, Again, the theory gets a bit weird. There's a story about a... Maybe it was the Mary Celeste or another one, I can't remember, but um, where there was nobody left apart from the ship's dog or cat and he makes some big thing about... It's because this these these uh, underwater creatures have been spotted, so they have to take all the humans away who could talk about it and stuff. So it, hmm. it gets a little bit woo woo, but he does hmm. he does try, <laughs> he does kind of tie in disappearances associated with UFOs in some ways, but it it didn't really stand up for me when I read it that bit. I just wonder why they'd be abducting us. Um, if they lived, you know, a few miles away. Yeah. Well, let's hope they give us, like, some some scuba gear. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> That'd be a shock, wouldn't it? But this whole idea of they're here and living amongst us is, whichever form it takes, it is quite popular, whether it's alien hybrids... Yeah, or lizard an people. ...an invasion, yeah. lizard people, yeah. But in terms of, from a, from a, let's say, from a pure science fiction point of view... His theory makes more logical sense than any of those to me because there is plenty of places they could remain hidden under the ocean and occasionally they may send craft up almost like drones to kind of keep an eye on us. But, mm. you know, it, it's, it's possible that they could remain hidden. So, you know, compared to other theories about they're among us, I think it's it's probably got more credibility than a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, um, underwater stuff, I suppose it's it's um, about the time of year for it, people moving, you know, on holiday, move, not moving on holiday, going on holiday, yeah. down to the beach. Yeah. That um, story we covered about the woman being abducted in Pembrokeshire, the first time she saw the craft was on the estuary. Uh, that, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And Rendlesham is right on the coast. 
Yes. Because the, everyone argues that it's the lighthouse. So it goes back to his theory, 50% of it sightings does. connected with water. If you're on holiday, keep your eyes peeled. Mm. But keep manifesting. Should we yes, go into our Sherlock office? Let's tulpa. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to put a deer stalker on and uh, something very Sherlockian. I'm going to inject myself with this massive dose of drugs. No, I'm not. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to light an imaginary pipe. Well, uh, you now you've had. Do you want to start? You've you've had something this week, haven't you? Yeah. So um, the we two... should probably introduce it for people who don't know. So we have this ongoing project to make Sherlock Holmes real by thinking about it. See if we can basically create a real ghost of Sherlock Holmes, a fictional character, a tulpa. Um, so yes, Ben and me and some of the listeners out there have been spending a little bit time out of their day or week thinking about Sherlock and seeing if anything weird happens. Yes, so let's have a... So I uh, I was on the London Underground. I saw a poster for the Sherlock Holmes exhibition. I don't think that's a real biggie, but it's certainly sort of... I guess these things stand out. But I will say last night I was out in my garden and for the first time... Ever, I smelt pipe smoke and I couldn't work out where it was coming from. Oh. You know how pipe smoke is very dis- distinctive? Mm. Well, you said that you were hoping to... Yes, So I you'd did. actually... you took, I think it was it last week or the first week you yeah. said, really want to smell some pipe... And it's your second job involving pipes, isn't it? It is, it is, yes. The first being the briar root pipe, yes. Yeah. No, and my next-door neighbours don't smoke as far as I know. I haven't seen anyone smoking a pipe ages no i haven't i haven't um certainly i don't think in the last five years but there it was very very distinct pipe smoke wow um i looked around couldn't see anyone poked my head over the fence couldn't see anyone around it lasted about three or four minutes and then dissipated and i couldn't actually see it i could just smell it but I know what it smells like. My granddad used to smoke a pipe. Were I really you, know what it smells like. Were you like. on your own or was... I was on my own, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I'm not saying you're making it up. I'm just wondering <laughs> if there was corroborating evidence. No, sadly not. No, I wish Rachel had been there because it was such a... I nearly texted her to say... Can you smell the pipes? He's gone mad again. <laughs> I know. No, no, I need to take him to hospital. He's having a heart attack. No. And were you, you'd, you'd been doing your... Sherlock meditation. I, uh, I just, I literally just been watching a couple of clips on YouTube to keep up the oh the Sherlock the Sherlockness. Yeah. Well, I've had two little jots this week. I um, first one I think was on Tuesday. Uh, I was catching up on my weekend listening and listening to Radio 4's excellent news quiz. Um, Anyone who doesn't, outside the UK, might, I, the name suggests what it is. It's basically, it's a quiz that talks about the news with comedians. Uh, and the first, it was coming from a literary festival last week. And they decided to do news stories in the style of certain books. And the first one they said was a detective novel. And they did a whole Holmes and Watson piece. So that, <laughs> that was one. Um, I was also... Uh, Last night, I've been watching a series called Night Skies on Amazon. Uh, There was a reference to uh, Sherlock and Watson in that. Again, maybe I'm just noticing them rather than, you know what I mean? I would have just gone off the top of my head. But the interesting one I've had, last week I talked about trying to enlist Sherlock in helping solve mysteries. Oh, yes, absolutely. So my mystery was we, uh, we've we had this bottle opener for about 18 years, bit of a memento from when we got married, and it went missing uh, a few weeks ago. And I, I said last week I might try and engage Sherlock in helping me find it. And <laughs> I think one of our listeners the other week who had a little jot said something about that they'd put minimal effort <laughs> into the experiment. Yes, yes, she did. <laughs> That's what I did this week regarding the bottle opener. I kind of thought, oh, I'll sit there and think about Sherlock. And like, I haven't got time. Um, <laughs> and then on, uh, on Wednesday, I went <laughs> to open a bottle of wine. I opened the drawer. And another bottle opener was missing. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> yeah, and again, it was another one that I had, uh, what's the word, borrowed permanently from one of the hotels that we <laughs> stayed at when we got married, a different hotel. Um, <clears throat> so now I'm sitting here going, A, there's two mementos that have gone missing. And <laughs> I was slightly worried as well because I've only got one bottle opener left now, <laughs> which sent me into a bit of panic. So I, I went, right, I need to engage Sherlock in this. So I, I sat down for a few minutes and thought, what would Sherlock do? What logic would he put to this? So I started thinking about it and I said, well, what connects the disappearances? And Having what, a teenager in the house? No, what oh. connects the disappearances that we had people staying over the night before oh, both of oh. these things disappeared. Now, different people, and they didn't know about it, so I'm not saying they nicked it. <laughs> Kleptostan. Yeah, which was my first thought, to be honest. I was like, hey, do, I, do, do I then contact my friends and say, this sounds a bit weird, but did you steal my bottle opener? Um, or two of my bottle openers? So I then started to put some Sherlock logic and going, right, what could have happened here? And I went, ah, maybe when they were staying here, they opened a bottle of wine and they've not put the bottle opener back where they found it. Seems very logical, right? That's very logical, yeah. Yeah. And then I, th- so then I stood where my bottle opener was. I opened the drawer and went, actually, if I'd taken the bottle opener out of there, it doesn't look like the kind of place you'd put it back, even though we keep them there. So then I thought, if I was a visitor to this house, where would I put the bottle opener? So I looked around the drawers, opened up the drawers and went, that's probably the one I would put it in because there's lots of utensils and things that I never use, like a, you know, potato ricer. (laughs) We've all got one of those, right? That sits in a drawer. Never use it. So I thought, I'll just start rummaging through that drawer. And I found the one that went missing the other day, the most recent one. I was like, yes, I found it. And I went, well, would my other visitors three weeks ago have used the same logic and put it in that drawer? I rummaged around. At the back of the drawer was the other one as well. No, Sherlock helped you solve it. I solved it. So initially I thought, what the heck is going on? Rather than help me solve it, he's lost another one, Sherlock. But then I found both of them. My goodness. Now that could just me putting my brain to the problem it's hardly uh it's hardly a, a novel <laughs> so i'm gonna make a novel of the greatest mysteries of all time <laughs> oh so we'll put it back in a different drawer but I, it was interesting i tried to use sherlock's logic and it works he would have called it something like the red drawer yeah. or <laughs> yeah. no it would have been called the corkscrew oh yeah 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 the corkscrew mystery Yes, yes. That, oh, well. Look, I mean, I in a way, the good. logic did work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I wouldn't have. Would I have applied the same logic? I don't think I would have sat there and gone, "What would Sherlock have done?" and thought about the connections of who's been round and all that kind of stuff. So, it helped. Whether it just helped me be logical rather than some kind of paranormal activity, but it worked. That's the most important thing. Wow, well done. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, there's a bit of an update from people uh, this week. Yes, so an update from Marie Griffiths. Sherlock Holmes alert. Thank you. Uh, 29th of May uh, on the PM programme. Gosh, we've got sophisticated listeners. That's two mentions of Radio 4 Ooh, that's today. That's two Radio 4. Maybe yeah. they're obsessed with Sherlock as well. Uh, talking about Jeremy Paxman leaving University Challenge. And they spoke about uh, Magnus Magnuson's time as Quizmaster. And the specialist subject in that particular conversation was Sherlock Holmes. Ah. So very good, very well alerted. So, Gosh. so, so basically, me and is it Ma- uh, Marie? Marie. We both had Radio 4 Sherlock Holmes incidents, but on two different programmes. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know whether we're just spotting Sherlock Holmes now, but... I'm sure there's a lot to that, that we're just more aware of it. Yeah. But but that is still interesting. I I think I'd always seen the uh, Tulpa Encounter scale as these type of things being a build-up to something else. And 
I'm not sure my missing corkscrew lifts it to another level, but it was an interesting exercise. If, if you got a mystery, it's definitely worth doing. I still haven't solved the mystery of the Lenore, but... Um, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about that quite a lot, your Lenore. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm monitoring everything that goes down into the cellar. And, and to, to be honest, I was in the supermarket the other day and I went past a shelf that had Lenore on it and a big bottle and I thought I'd just go with it because, Jesus, that stuff's expensive. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It really is. I don't know what they make it out of. Yeah. Good. All right, well, look, um, anyone listening at home, keep keep them coming with your Sherlock encounters, whether they be just strange coincidences or other types of activity. Um uh, now, now he's found my bottle opener. I'm definitely going to keep keep going. Oh, good on you, Sherlock. Yeah, um, lovely. Thank you. That was very interesting. I'm, I tell you what, it does make it when you start thinking about that and start start thinking about going for a paddle in the seaside. Mm. It makes you think twice in case a hand comes out and yeah, if they've got hands. Yeah, a tentacle. I was thinking actually because that was very focused 1970 and earlier. Probably we want to do one that's more modern take on it at some point. But I thought that was a good starting point, at least. Really good starting point. Cool. All right, right. we will see you next week on the Quantum Mechanics. Like, subscribe, review, five stars. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you later. See you later. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.